It's Friday, April 17th, and we are studying 2 Peter. We've gotten to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 17. So let's take a look at this. Here's the context, of course. He is reprising that phrase, to make every effort. And that's, of course, what he's instructed us to do, what his readers are to do. And he's saying he's doing all that he can so that after he leaves, after he dies, after his departure, that they might be able to at any time recall the things that he is exhorting them to do. And he says all of this, we made a big deal out of the word for there. The reason is because this is worthy of our attention. This is worthy of responding to because it's not a myth. It's not some cleverly devised myth. Uh, Instead, he says, we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he said this is a reference to the one use of this word here, periousia in in Greek, the word that translated coming, that's referring to his first coming. Of course, we can talk about his second coming and have that in view, and he's going to talk about about that in chapter 3. But I'll show you why this is a connection to his first coming, because all of this really grammatically is one sentence, uh, verses 16 and 17. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and of course that involved a lot of things, and I even talked last time about his miracles and about his ministry, his teaching, of course, Uh, But he's going to specifically dig in and drill down into this right here, verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, from God the Father, uh, and the voice was born to him uh, by the majestic glory. There's a phrase that is representing and referring to an appellation for God the Father. He said this, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That's part of the uh, quotation there that we have in the Gospels, but that is the important part that Peter wants to um, underscore. I wanted to get into verse 18 today, but I'm just not able to with what we want to cover today. So we'll take the first half of that, which is really the second half of what we see uh, it predicated upon in verse 16. So this all goes together. But here we have something which should be pretty clear to you, the idea here of this voice, this voice that was given. If you know your Bibles, this is in the Gospels. As a matter of fact, let's look at that passage here. Uh, we call it the Transfiguration, uh, the Transfiguration, because this is where his appearance is transfigured. Here's verse 1 of Matthew 17. All the synoptics deal with this, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, here is the reference to uh, what happened. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter. Here's the author of our epistle right here, Peter, and James and John, those always go together, that's the inner circle of the twelve, and led them up to a high mountain, that's the mountain referred to in 2 Peter chapter 1, by themselves. So the four of them were together. And he was, we call it the transfiguration because his appearance changed. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, some kind of brilliance here, which is the connection to the word glory, which we're going to see. Uh, And his clothes became white like light, white as light. And behold, there appeared uh, to them Moses and Elijah. One of the ways we talk about the Old Testament, and Jesus referred to it, is uh, the law and the prophets. And so this represents all of the uh, revelation that came through the great uh, prophets of the Old Testament, and it can be summarized by the great initial prophet there, Moses, who wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. God used him to record that. And Elijah, So we have these two key figures here that represents really, in essence, the shorthand for all of the Old Testament revelation that God brought, and they were talking with him. And I often say, how did they know it was Moses 
and Elijah, and uh, you know what, they didn't know what it looked like. They didn't have any paintings, of course. Now, I often say that maybe they were wearing name tags. I'm not sure. Obviously, they were introduced in some way, and they knew who they were because of the identification that was given uh, to those two figures by Christ. And Peter, here's our the author of our epistle, said to Jesus, as he often does, very impulsive with his words, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents. Now, that sounds odd, like they're camping, but that's the word uh, for tabernacle. That's the portable worship center that we had in the Old Testament. So let's make three tents, three tabernacles, three places where we can um, recognize the greatness of this event. Uh, here, one for you, one in your honor, and one for Moses and Elijah. Uh, and he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. Now, here's the phrase, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Now, here's the phrase that is the upshot of what his ministry was getting from the Father here, the endorsement for them to listen to him. Uh, and when the disciples heard this, and you can imagine, uh, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. Uh, this is the transfiguration, the historical event in which this uh, passage that we're looking at today, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, is referring to, and will be on Monday, also in verse 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. That's our passage for today, and let's just figure out a few things in this text that I think would be important. One, certainly, is the use of the phrase here, honor and glory. Honor and glory, as you see, it says he received honor and glory. Of course, we're talking about Christ, uh, and it was from God the Father. Let's start with just the phrase honor and glory. First Peter, I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. I didn't put it on the screen, but uh, it's one that perhaps you know. The doxology there in the end of chapter 1, as Paul writes to Timothy, this young pastor, and he speaks in uh, doxological language. Doc, doxological, um, logos means a statement, um, an expression. Uh, doxa is the word for glory. It's a word of praise, a word of glorification. And uh, I just clarify that because sometimes we talk about sections in the scripture that are doxologies, like outbursts of praise. And so here in verse uh, 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says, speaking of God, it says, the, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be, and here's our phrase, honor and glory forever and ever. That doxological expression of the greatness of God makes it very clear. And speaking of the immortal, invisible God, to him belong these things, honor and glory. And that honor and glory that, of course, is the extreme expression of the greatness and, 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 and worthiness, um, pricelessness, really is one of the uh, words of that word to me, that the idea of honor, it's, it's priceless, it's worthy of all um, um, respect, and it, it's, it's invaluable. All of that that, that it, God possesses now is now attributed to the Son. Honor and glory, uh, and glory, of course, talk about that in the Old Testament often when I'm preaching, I talk about the Hebrew word kabod, uh, which at its root means a, a, a weight, a weightiness, a heaviness, which is metaphorically referring to anything that is super duper important, the, the, the dignity and gravity of the greatness, and there's none greater than God himself. Uh, glory, a New Testament equivalent in Greek, uh, doxa, the idea here of a gravity, uh, uh, a worthiness, a 
such worth when we talk about God that's worthy of worship because only God is worthy of worship. That's the idea of the Father possessing those things, 1 Timothy 1.17, and all of that now, it says, uh, is being endowed upon uh, by the Father to the Son. As a matter of fact, that's the next phrase I'd like you to look at here in our passage. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, it says he received honor and glory from God the Father. That's such a familiar phrase for us as Christians. We think about uh, calling God, God the Father. But you know, that's a New Testament phrase. I mean, there's very few references to God in that paternal sense as Father in the Old Testament. I mean, it's there, but it's rare. The expression, though, God the Father, only used in the New Testament because there's a distinguishing now very clearly in the New Testament, and a lot of it is hidden and, and, and intimated and, and suggested in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, here is a clear distinction between the persons of the Godhead, God the Father and God the Son. And God the Son now is being endorsed by God the Father with glory and honor. He's receiving that by this voice that comes and gives him uh, this endorsement. So making the distinction here between the persons of the Godhead, while that's heresy to a lot of cult groups and people that understand the Trinitarian nature of God, uh, we need to be assured of that in our own thinking. As a matter of fact, I'd like to show you one passage, and I often go to this passage if I just have a minute to deal with someone who's questioning the deity of Christ. And of course, deity uh, means that the, the, the godness of, of Christ, that Christ is God. Um, here's a passage I think it's important for us uh, just to, to have at the tip of our tongue and ready to explain the deity of Christ. And again, you see in this passage, this is John chapter 5, verse 21, and Jesus, these are in red letters, I'm just pulling it right out of the ESV here, uh, in red stating and referring to the fact that this, these are Jesus's words. It, and Jesus is, as, for as the Father, and again, I just want to remind you, that's such a rare concept in the Old Testament of that uh, distinguishing of, I mean, certainly not in that way, a distinguishing between the Son, but the idea of the paternity of, of the Father. The Father, that's something Jesus loved to refer to, God the Father in heaven as. For the Father, uh, it says, for as the Father raises the dead, here's an important word, as, and gives, gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now look at that, just a crazy concept of the power of the, the, uh, the, the freedom of the Son to give life. Well, the giving of life, uh, the created uh, or the, the role of creator, the act of creation, I mean, always attributed to God in the Bible, and yet here now we see it is attributed to the Son. And, and here's our word, for, for just as the Father raises the dead. I mean, he can give life to whomever he wants, and so the Son gives life to whoever he wants. Uh, here's a passage, just to break this down into three parts. Uh, Job uh, chapter 33, verse 4. Job 33 verse 4, uh, which simply states when it comes to the giving of life, it says the Spirit of God uh, made me, uh, the, the, the writer says, Job says, uh, and the breath of the Almighty uh, gives me life. In the Bible, the giver of life is God. And you don't talk about this rabbi or this prophet or whoever you want to consider Christ to be even one of the cult groups, if you can say, well, he's Michael the archangel. Well, the reality is that there's only one that gives life, and that is the God of the Bible, uh, the one who has all glory and all power. Look at this next um, verse here, verse 22. Uh, For the Father, again, distinguishing from the Son, he judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the Son. So the Father doesn't judge anyone. The Son 
judges everyone. The father raises the dead, gives life. The son gives life. Well, the father has apparently taken this role of judging mankind, and he's given this to the son. I just want to make this clear in Scripture. There are so many passages, but here's one. Uh, let's jot down Psalm 98, verse 9. Psalm 98, verse 9, with my very bad handwriting. Uh, but the verse simply says that it is before Yahweh, before the Lord, uh, that the whole earth comes to be judged. And Yahweh, God will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. How important is that for us to understand? Who is the judge of the earth? Well, God is. Yahweh is. Well, it says here that specific act is given to the second person of the Godhead, the Son. Again, it speaks of his deity. Or how about this? That all may honor, here's our word even that we saw in our passage here, that all may honor the Son, and again, here's such big words, just as, to the same extent, that Greek word we've talked about, kathos, to the same way that they honor the Father. That, that all, these are all people now, might honor the Son as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son uh, does not honor the Father who sent him. So again, I, I want to point out the distinctions here in the persons of the God, the Father and the Son. And I want to talk about what this is saying, the idea of worship. And even when Jesus, by the way, was in the wilderness being tempted in uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, he made very clear when Jesus was told to bow down before Satan uh, that Jesus responded, well, listen, no one is to worship anyone but the Lord your God. You shall worship the Lord your God and shall serve him only. The exclusivity of worshiping uh, God. Well, and yet here it says if you don't worship the Son as you worship the Father, well, then the Father's not honored. You can't, you can't honor the Father, a word of worship, of giving him praise, of being worthy of praise, as I said at the outset. Uh, you can't do that. Uh, to the Father, unless you do that to the Son and give that honor to Him. Uh, passages I often quote in this regard, Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, that speaks of the fact that God is a jealous God, and because of that, you're not to worship any other God. It's like the first statement of Exodus 20, the of the Ten Commandments. Worship God and worship God alone. So it's important for us as we read a passage like this, there's more coming tomorrow or Monday, I guess, when we deal with this next verse, but the idea of that voice coming from heaven to affirm the Son. It's important in a passage like this that we affirm the deity of the Son. You can go to the passages throughout the Scripture that talk about this in an outright way. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in Him, speaking of Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, in a human body, in Jesus. Or Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, He, that is Christ, is the radiance, and here's our word, the other word, doxa, the radiance of, his, of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, the nature of God, worthy of honor and glory. And he, Christ, upholds the universe by the word of his power. He gives life. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's the distinctions between the persons of the Godhead. More to say on this as we deal with verse number 8. Uh, I'm sorry, 18. We'll, we'll duck back into verse 17 and get a little bit more. Thanks for tuning in today. Continue to comment and subscribe, and we'll be back with you as we continue to walk through 2 Peter uh, chapter 1.